Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. So we're going to continue where we left off last week, talking about structural and neuroplastic pain, bringing in some of these really important techniques that have been developed by many of the uh, researchers out there and these third wave psychotherapies. And this um, uh, very helpful book that's been put out by Alan Gordon and his colleague regarding chronic pain. So what the book does is it, it adopts some of these psychotherapies that are really well described in a manuscript by Lumney and Schubner that we connected you to in our last podcast. So what we want to do in this podcast is we want to talk about the evidence for and against structural pain or neuroplastic pain. So let's look at that evidence. Many of the techniques, though, that we think about with the pain reprocessing therapy can actually benefit patients who have structural pain. And in fact, I would argue that they can actually prevent the development of neuroplastic pain. So I think these techniques are something that we want to think about and to think about adopting. What's really useful, though, is that if you can get the patient to recognize that their pain is neuroplastic, there is evidence that shows that neuroplastic pain can be cured by some of these techniques. It definitely can show that it can have an impact. So these are just one tool, though. It's important to mention that. So when we think about those multi-dimensions that we talked about last week, each of these dimensions have a remedy in them. So this would be partly the psychological tools, but also some biological tools as well. So the reason why these psychological tools can have an impact is that we know that they can change how that nervous system is functioning through a process called neuroplasticity. So that's what makes these therapies so appealing and so amazing. So why is it, however, then, and so important to separate structural pain from neuroplastic pain? And I think we talked about that briefly last week. It's very easy to keep patients stuck and ourselves stuck using tools that can worsen neuroplastic pain, right? We're thinking about them from a structural perspective when really they only aggravate neuroplastic pain. What we want to do is make that shift away from structural to neuroplastic. And by shifting, what we're doing when we're using these neuroplastic skills is that we can truly benefit structural pain. So it just adds in that psychological tools that we talked about. Sending patients to a treadmill, you know, asking them to get on a treadmill for 15 minutes twice a day sounds really nice. And actually the patient, I bet you anything, would love to be able to do that. But if they have neuroplastic pain, we have to take a different approach in terms of how we want them to get active. Because not only is that 15 minutes twice a day going to feel unsafe to them, they'll probably end up getting worsening pain. And uh, the reason why is that the pain alarm is really starting to become more amplified. There's a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty to how patients are experiencing pain, and they really don't know from day to day. But their brain has learned that by pushing uh, and by doing certain activities actually can worsen their pain experience. So let's look at the evidence list. And what's important about this is that the patient does not need to check them all off. It's important that they just see similarities in their own experience. So the first thing I love to do is to get patients to separate them out. 
And this is a really nice exercise that you can do with the patient, and it's an exercise they can do themselves. So what I get them to do is to make a list of what they've been told or what they believe is causing their pain today. All of those things are really important because they're part of that patient's story. Don't be surprised if that patient or the individual takes you back. So you might have a 75-year-old sitting in the office and they take you back to an injury they sustained at the age of four. It's, it's really quite eye-opening and quite, I mean, I just find it so curious to explore this with patients. Whatever it is that they feel is contributing to their pain today, list it. What you want to do is help them recognize that if their pain has been present for more than three months, that the cause of their pain is no longer structural, even if it started as a structural problem. It's actually transitioned to a neuropathic kind of process or a neuroplastic process. And that's really an important distinction to make for the patient. Other evidence that you can use, so if we're talking structural pain, it's very predictable. So when someone has a fracture, we can sit with that patient and tell them what normally should happen unless they get complications related to the injury. And that's when it doesn't heal or if they get an infection. So structural pain or acute pain is very predictable. Pain has a pattern, right? So when a patient comes to you and tells you that both hands and one leg is hurting, that really doesn't tell you a pattern. But that is very classic with neuroplastic pain, is that there is no pattern to what the patient is describing. Typically, structural pain does not spread, right? It stays well localized, unless the patient is doing pain-protective behaviors, right? So I could see somebody with a fractured femur, when they're up moving with crutches that are not fitting properly, maybe tucking forward, right? So you want to point that out. It's really important in that acute pain. Uh, experience that they're not using a lot of pain protective behaviors. What happens with structural pain is that that tissue should heal and pain should resolve within zero, zero to three months. Neuroplastic pain is totally unpredictable, has no pattern. It's really random, occurs in multiple areas of the patient's body that can change daily. Their tissue has healed, but the pain has persisted well after tissue has healed. So if that pain has been there longer than three months, and you cannot find any new condition or progression of a pre-existing condition, they have neuroplastic pain. Other evidence for neuroplastic pain, pain that comes out of nowhere. So probably about 40% of your patients can actually give you a distinct trigger for their pain. So the question I love to ask is when did pain become persistent in their life? But about 60% of patients will actually describe their pain as coming out of nowhere. It was just a very gradual onset. So this is very classic of neuroplastic pain. So neuroplastic pain is often widespread. So the patient may describe total body pain. Now what is important if the patient is on opiate analgesics is you need to move, uh, rule out sorry, opiate-induced hyperalgesia because that can also give them total body pain. Pain that gets better when they're doing something they enjoy, right? That is classic neuroplastic. And we had a great case in the clinic that described this really well. It was a young girl who had a very, very difficult time sitting in a chair. And she really could not sit well at all. And although when we started to explore things that she loved to do, she loved to do drumming. And she could sit with her drumming at least for 15 minutes without a flare-up in her pain. That is classic neuroplastic pain. So those are things that you want to point out to the patient. Pain that shifts from one location in the body to other locations. Pain that started during a period of stress. 
So that can be a positive stress, like a birth or a marriage. I'm always amazed at how many women I see in the clinic who actually pain began during a period of either the birth of their child or during labor. That stress can be also a negative stress, like the death of a loved one, or if they were being bullied, or if there are really complex family dynamics. And God forbid, COVID, that is probably one of the biggest stresses that all of us can relate to at this point in our life. We'll see higher incidence of chronic pain in patients who are experiencing COVID, not only because of glial cell dysregulation, we're also seeing it because of the stress response, right? So it's a really scary illness, a lot of uncertainty, and there's a lot of misinformation online, which just really keeps that brain in that high alert state. Other evidence that you can use with the patient includes that neuroplastic pain will intensify when they're experiencing pressure from themselves and others. Neuroplastic pain occurs when that is triggered by things that have nothing to do with their body. We did talk about weather, but it can be smells, sounds, time of the day, pain that gets better temporarily or not at all when it's treated, pain that does not get better with time or rest. In fact, over time, the pain starts to get worse, even though there's nothing new in their tissue or no progression of a pre-existing disease. What we want to do is see how we can progress this a little bit further. That's how we can help the patient identify structural types of pain and neuroplastic pain. So now what we want to be able to do is to help them identify possible high alert triggers in their environment that have hijacked their amygdala. Remember that amygdala, that threat detector? So I might seem like I'm going down a little rabbit hole, but I promise you I'm going to pull your rate back up again. So what I want to do is to look at these high alert triggers and then maybe help you explore with the patient some techniques that they can use to reduce those danger signals and to promote safety in their body, which is literally what pain reprocessing therapy is. Now, in Alan Gordon's book, and I keep coming back to that, he gets into this in a big way. So you could also recommend or have the patient look at this. Now, what I think might start to happen with patients is that because the focus is so much on psychological therapies in his book, that sometimes patients feel that their pain is being minimized. And he points this out actually in the book. And the phrase that he uses to tell patients that no, the pain is real, is that he asks them, are you feeling pain? And of course, they're going to say yes. Then if you're feeling pain, the pain is real. So it's really important as you're reading this book not to see this as a discountment of the physical experiences that you're having around your pain, even though the focus is on using those techniques that really look at the third wave psychotherapies. They can be very helpful. See them, see them as a tool in your toolbox. So we talked about medication. We talked about calming techniques, right? So these are things that people use. So just see this as another tool. And don't put pressure on yourself as you're going through the book. Just kind of look at it from a point of curiosity and just see it as another way of thinking about your pain and another way that might give you a route out. So what I often will try and do in the clinic is a little bit different than I'm going to tell you to do today. So depending on where the patient is in uh, in the recovery, and obviously 
this is really when we're exploring these types of high alert triggers. If the patient is in a really high intensity of pain, it can be very hard to do. So sometimes we need to put these things off. And I'll explain that a little bit in more depth as we go along. If we start with those triggers that are impacting them today, try to explore them. First, I want to just define what a high alert trigger is. And literally what they are is it's anything that triggers danger or fear in the brain and body. And we all experience this differently. For me, it was really hard to understand what that felt like. But I got into this terrible habit during COVID of watching CNN, right? I'm sure many of you out there are doing the same thing. And what I started feeling was this restlessness. And I felt that I was in, not, not in danger. I can't even put that. That wasn't even the right word. I just felt an unsettling feeling. And that's literally what you're looking for, is something that makes you feel unsettled. And then what, what's happening is that the part of the brain that processes that is the amygdala. So we may not be feeling fear. I don't feel fear at watching CNN. But my brain is interpreting that sensation from a perspective of fear or danger. So the brain doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know if it's a saber-toothed tiger, right? This is the evolutionary part. Our brain has not evolved very well, and uh, it just knows that something is not right. So our brain and our amygdala in particular are hardwired to pay attention to these high alert triggers. And as I mentioned, the modern world and the stresses that we see in the modern world really can play havoc with the fear detector in our brain. So not everybody, as I mentioned, relates to fear. So fear is not something, uh, I mean, I do relate to it, but I, it's not something that I think about. So if we want to try and explore what, what kind of trigger that will be processed as fear in our brain, the way to do this is to ask ourselves, do I feel more danger or less danger when I feel this way? So when I think about you know, my crazy watching of CNN, I actually feel more danger, but not in dangerous ways. I don't know if that makes sense. I just feel restless. So if I feel unsettled or restless, this is how our brain actually sees this as a form of fear, in particular the amygdala. And remember, with chronic pain or neuroplastic pain, the amygdala has been hijacked by these high alert triggers. There can be emotive experiences such as anger, uncertainty, frustration, Hopelessness, unpredictability, despair, anxiety, and helplessness are all processed by the amygdala as a threat. So they are considered high alert triggers. What other things can be processed as a threat today? Let's kind of go through that. So my question always is, are there any high alert triggers that are happening to you today? So that could include things with work, if you're being bullied at work, if there are issues at home. If you're being bullied at school or you're unhappy at school, if you're having a really hard time with COVID, which a lot of us are, then that can be, that's experienced as a high alert trigger, even though we can consciously recognize it. And this is especially true, I'm going to argue, for patients that are terrified of vaccination. I understand where people are coming from, but what happens if we are not vaccinated is that the brain is in a very high alert state. In fact, we're being extra hypervigilant, especially for those we care about and for ourselves. Even though the thought of getting the vaccine puts you in a high alert state, not having the vaccine keeps you in a high alert state. So it's important to recognize that. 
all of the the symptoms or all of the conditions that people are afraid of with the vaccine actually happen with the infection itself. And personally, I'd rather take my chances with the vaccine than take it with the disease. So I just want to put that out there. But I do respect people's where they're coming from. And I think we have to be very patient and bring empathy for those that are having a difficult time. For somebody, another higher trigger today would be that their pain is still not being validated by either a work-related colleagues or our spouses or our family members. There are also what we call high alert personality traits. So what are those? Well, I think we can identify them, you know, for a perfectionist. If we are a people pleaser, you know, if we are a a worrier or a ruminator, if we are overly conscientious, believe it or not. So these are individuals that have a really hard time, you know, viewing uh, animal cruelty, right? So it's a very devastating experience for them. There are ones that uh, like sort of personalities when we think about anxiety. So these personality traits keep us in a high alert state. So and we talked about the language, especially in the previous podcast. So what is the language that the patient is using, but also that we're using to describe the patient's pain. And when the patient uses terminology that I feel can be scary, I like to break it down. I like to try and understand how the patient interprets that term. So it's really good to explore that with the patient. Other modern day habits that can create high alert states are cell phones, people. How many times do we sit up straight when we hear a ping, right? I mean, there's a reason why Steve Jobs would not let his kids have phones. He understood the power of how these phones could hijack our brains. Brains that are under the age of 35 are really vulnerable. So it's because they have significant processes that are still developing within the brain, especially the frontal lobe, which controls impulse. Cell phones are really, they really create a high alert state. And on average, we check them 221 times a day. Isn't that insane? Crazy, crazy. Uh, Facebook, especially if you're responding to anyone, holy moly. Instagram, 24-hour cable news. Okay, that's my vice. That's the one that I have a hard time moving away from. Anything that gets your attention in an urgent way will put you in a high alert state. So language we talked about, I'm not going to go through that, but like I said, try and explore that with your patient. So the next high alert state that you want to look at is when, it's kind of explore with the patient or have, the pa- have them explore it as well, is when did pain become persistent in their life? And as mentioned, about 40% of patients can actually give you a very specific time, but 60% can't. And that's when pain came out of the blue. So that classically is your neuroplastic pain. But what you want to be able to do in those patients that can tell you an exact time, kind of help them explore if this was a stressful time, either good or bad in their life. Did they have uh, a pregnancy that was very high stress? Or did they have a recent job promotion that was really high stress, put a lot of pressure on themselves, especially if they were a perfectionist? was the pain that they were feeling terrifying. So I remember myself when I was in labor, how trapped I felt. I didn't realize how intense that would be. So you felt so trapped. And uh, even though you had access to medication, if you were somebody that rapidly would progress through that labor, you wouldn't get any medication. So I can truly understand how we can perceive that experience in a way that is really terrifying. Were they not being heard or not given answers about the cause of their pain? So that is something that will continue to drive the uncertainty, unpredictable, and that high alert trigger. 
Were they dealing with workman's compensation or insurance companies? So that third-party liability almost always causes patients to cross over into neuroplastic pain, I'm sorry to say. By the time I see them in the clinic, I mean, they're sometimes they're about a year out and they're still being pushed to physiotherapies, which seem to be actually causing these intense flare-ups of pain. And the brain is actually becoming more protective, meaning that they'll get pain before they even do those uh, activities that they want them to do. Can you imagine if we could get a third-party liability to work with us and to actually start implementing processes or programs early in the patient's injury or their surgery that hopefully can help bypass creating these neuroplastic changes? We all need to get on the same page with this. So all of these factors that I mentioned can create a high alert state while the patient's experiencing acute pain. It can be a really important knowledge piece in terms of how we can prevent neuroplastic pain from developing. Then what I do is I get the patient to go back in time because there's some really interesting evidence around how we can prime the nervous system to develop neuroplastic pain. And it's very similar if we bring the analogy of the glial cell again. If we look at our immune response to something as simple as an antibiotic, so I have a patient, you know, I put them on an antibiotic, the patient does okay. And then they come back many months later with the same condition and we put them on that same antibiotic, but this time they develop a rash. So what's happened, this is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction, is that their immune system has primed them prior to that second exposure. And so when they get that second exposure, they get a rash or they get a reaction. Same thing can happen with pain. So there are experiences or impactful pain experiences previous to the development of the patient's chronic pain that can actually prime them for developing chronic pain. Does that mean that they have to go back and fix it? No. I think what's really important is that you want to increase their awareness that this is something that may have been in the cards and may be one of the factors that contribute to their chronic pain. Did they have a parent or who experienced severe pain and who struggled with worry, anxiety, or even a substance use disorder? Was there any intergenerational trauma, right? So this is, we know, is a factor that can prime nervous systems for the development of chronic pain. So how safe did they feel as they navigated challenges in their life? Were there impactful experiences in their childhood? So we like to think of these as adverse childhood experiences. And one of the way I love to explore this with patients is to actually explore their sleep patterns as a kid. The question I often ask is, were they good sleepers as kids? And if they tell me they weren't, and not every, every, I mean, even if they're in a very stable home, kids that are often poor sleepers are often interpreting their environments. Obviously, there can be other factors, but they're often interpreting their environments as environments that don't feel safe in some way. So maybe they're getting bullied at school. Maybe they're aware of the fact that their mother and father are not getting along very well, or that maybe they're concerned about bedwetting. I mean, it's, there can be an endless list of things. But if they were not good sleepers as kids, Because that brain is often looking for some relief, it needs calm, you'll often see the introduction sometimes of substances, in particular alcohol, in around the age of 12. So it's a really interesting area to explore. Not every kid goes on to develop issues around substance use disorders, but I think the aspect of sleep, especially childhood sleep, 
is an area that um, really needs to be uh, seen as a precursor to, uh, or a window even, into some of these conditions like chronic pain and substance use disorder. The other thing you want to ask them is, were they bullied at school in foster care or suffered any kind of abuse? What we get are these three different ways. So we want to look at this Hyler triggers that are happening today, explore those, explore the triggers that happened when their, when their chronic pain developed, and then go back in time and ask them if they had any impactful experiences previous to the development of their chronic pain. So often with the acute pain experience, as well as their vulnerability in their life story, there is an opportunity for us to actually prevent the development of neuroplastic pain. When they develop neuroplastic pain, it's really about managing their chronic illness. Now, with some of these new third wave psychotherapies, we may be able to dial down what has actually happened within the brain and the sensory nociceptor. Knowing that we can prevent the development of neuroplastic pain by understanding the patient's vulnerabilities while viewing their acute pain experience through a lens of fear or danger can help us provide some techniques especially around pain reprocessing therapy and dialing down the danger alarm threat can hopefully maybe give the patient the ability not to develop neuroplastic pain. So I think that's a really important observation. Now what we want to do, so we kind of explored those high alert triggers. Now we're going to get into something called somatic tracking. And this is what Alan Gordon talks about in his book. Now really what somatic tracking is, is mindfulness. So this is just a uh, form of awareness that can be very, very powerful. What you're trying to do with this form of mindfulness is that you're trying to help the patient feel less danger and promote safety for their body and brain. So you're trying to bring in some awareness that their body is okay, that they're safe. And as I mentioned, that's a really hard thing for them to do, especially when they feel that their body is uh, experiencing something dangerous and that there is damage happening to their body. So what the heck is somatic tracking, right? That's a fancy word. It's like fancy words that we see sometimes come into, uh, I'm going to digress here for a sec, to the advanced cardiac life support courses, you know, these things like Ronif and Roski. And I think, why are we doing this? So anyway, it's just really fancy words that come in that kind of make things sound a little bit cool. So what the heck is somatic tracking? We talked about the fact that it is a form of mindfulness, which is a form of awareness. It's a simple but powerful technique. And what you're trying to do is increase the feelings of safety by de deactivating the brain's fear circuits. And this disrupts that pain-fear cycle that we talked about. And it starts to change the brain's relationship with pain. So what you want them to do is, in, is to use this technique just to investigate it, to be curious, and not to kind of do it with huge intensity. So Alan Gordon talks about doing it from a, a place of lightness and curiosity, and I think that's really important. But the other thing that's really important is they don't want to track unless it feels safe to do it. But when it does feel safe, they want to do it as often as they want. So they just want to do it randomly through the day. They don't want to make it intense. So if you've got somebody that's very, very focused on doing it right doing it the right amount of time, then that can actually make things kind of counter, uh, counterintuitive and counterproductive. So it needs to be done with just curiosity and lightness. What uh, Alan Gordon suggests, which I think is a really good way of thinking about this, so rather than use pain scales, right, that zero to 10 that everybody hates, 
is that you want to think of the pain uh, experience in this way. You want to use pain intensity. So you want to think about high intensity and everybody's uh, definition of high intensity is going to be different, moderate intensity or low intensity. So when you are experiencing high intensity pain, you don't want to do this mindfulness or somatic tracking, mostly because the brain is feeling so much danger at that time, you just cannot focus on it. And what Ellen Gordon promotes are often these calming techniques. So patients who live with chronic pain have developed a toolbox of calming techniques that work for them, either heat or ice, massage. Now these pain protective behaviors can be a form of calming techniques, but you don't want to be doing them for too long. So what these calming techniques are trying to do is to dial down that fear pain response. So encouraging these calming techniques, but also to start adding in some aspects of self-talk that can dial down the fear. And we'll talk about those in just a sec. If the pain is moderate to low, that's when you want to do the mindfulness, okay, or that somatic tracking. You can still bring in your calming techniques, that's fine. But this is when pain is more tolerable. And still, what's important about that somatic tracking is it needs to be done in a very non-focused, non-intense kind of way. And what's important is that they're not trying to take their pain away and not trying to make it go away. You're just trying to reinforce that the pain isn't dangerous, right? And that's always hard. So it's important to point out because I am not a mindfulness person, or at least I thought I wasn't, but I always thought mindfulness was much more complex than it is. So mindfulness is not sitting on the floor cross-legged, first thing. It is not a form of meditation. It is not a breathing technique, right? Even though breathing can help, and I'll explain that in a sec. It is a form of awareness. So you're paying, so if you look at uh, uh, the definition is you're paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So what you're trying to do is get your hijacked amygdala. And so you want to get out of that hijacked amygdala, which is an on automatic, unconscious, and unhabitual control, and shift pain awareness to the conscious part of your brain, which is in the prefrontal cortex. So we're trying to take that unconscious hijacked amygdala, amygdala and bring pain to our consciousness. Now, mindfulness, the, the best way to do that, the most effective tool that we have is through our breath. But breathing can be really hard. Now, if you haven't seen the Headspace, and I have no shares in Headspace, but they do a great job with this. All they get you to do, they don't even get into some major techniques around breathing. I mean, sir, they do get into some techniques, but they have really simple ways of just getting people to breathe. And uh, they're kind of cool, actually. And they do have sections on pain. So it's really important that we're trying to use as many tools as possible to get our hijacked amygdala, which is an unconscious, automatic, habitual control, and bring our pain to our consciousness. So I'm going to stop there. And we're going to do the last session probably next week. This is where we're going to get into some of these common techniques. Hopefully you find this informative. I am still working on getting someone that we can actually talk to about some of these techniques. I'm sure I can find a psychologist that uh, would be willing to uh, explore some of this with me. In the meantime, stay safe. We'll check in with you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. 
To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.